0: You're listening to a classic business podcast, as heard on Classic 1027.
1: Our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. The wisdom of Confucius is certainly apt as we see the dragon rising again. And I added some Satrix China ETF to a friend's son's portfolio uh, over December. He's 17, and uh, since adding it, the Shanghai Composite has... Uh, Typically it's lagged the JSE and the S&P and being 17 he's naturally tetchy and he's new to this whole investing thing and he wants to get out of it and I'm trying to reassure him that uh, he's got time on his hands and that China is a long game but ultimately the world is inexorably being drawn back into its orbit. And the world uh, has uh, been upended by the COVID storm. And when there's a storm of tectonic dimensions, one needs to bring in the cartographers to redraw the maps. And My next guest uh, is certainly a fantastic cartographer of history and big themes and economic trends, Investec strategist Michael Power, who understands the Chinese market more than most. And Michael, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thank you, Michael. And I would add that if, if there's any time for you to be putting uh, China in your portfolio, it's when you are 17, because it truly is a long game.
1: Now, we've got all of these things happening at the moment. There's, there's the climate theme, we've got the Paris Climate Agreement, we've got the COVID uh, pandemic that's upended the world. We've got this growing fissure between the US and China and this global energy transition And you kind of you look at this world through and you gave a very interesting talk earlier today about reorienting our worldview and looking at things through the Chinese lens. And I think many of us forget that we've got this Anglo-Saxon view of the world, that it's always been this way. But China or Asia, at least, has dominated for a far larger slice of history, hasn't it?
0: It has indeed. In fact, you and I were broadly speaking born, I suspect you're younger than I am. Um, at the end of of two centuries of aberration when uh, the Anglo-Saxons essentially um, took control of the global economy. Um, But for 25 of the last 27 centuries, Asia, mostly China, but occasionally India, uh, has been the world's largest uh, economy and the region as a whole has been by far and away the most dominant economic region.
1: And what were the structural reasons for China's subsequent decline and the empire's demise over the last two centuries?
0: Look, uh, there are many, um, but I would have to say almost number one has to be that the British essentially broke into China during the first and second opium wars and were able to uh, feed China the one thing it really wanted from abroad, which was opium. And they essentially uh, took the, uh, the sort of uh, the, the muscle out of China by addicting particularly its upper classes uh, and its, its business community. Uh, to opium. In fact, uh, come 1900, the only person in the imperial court um, who was not uh, addicted to opium was was the emperor's mother. Um, so it's 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 was a just an extraordinary uh, story of how I mean the Chinese didn't want, or at least the the emperor didn't want the opium, but uh, two wars basically forced uh, China to accept it. Um, and you can see very clearly from the sort of the longer term charts that. As and when the addiction took hold um, china 's economic fortunes collapsed
1: and I think it 's important to understand that because much of what happened to China over that period was a form of uh, colonization to an extent there was a foreign noose that tightened around uh, chinese uh, Chinese territory. And I think much of what has taken place since that Republican revolution in 1911, the rise and, and victory of Maoism in 1949, and now the socialism with Chinese characteristics, as it's called, really has been a reaction to that that loss of wealth, that loss of power and prestige and status. And I'm sure now with the, the Chinese um, ascendant again, there is this desire to regain The respect that I'm sure China's leaders and people feel that is their country's due. How do you view it?
0: Look, I think it's a sort of, dare I say it, manifest destiny. That phrase is usually used in the context of the United States. But is the manifest destiny of of China to recover its position um, as the world's leading economy? I mean, after all, um, numbers do count. Uh, 1.4 billion people, uh, three and a half times the population of the United States. Um, And one has to look back through history and see what role China has played in in development, in innovation. I can't stand people who say today that uh, China has no history of innovation and and, and invention. It's just not true. I mean, in fact, probably no nation has more to contribute or has contributed more in this field um, over history. So I I think they're just uh, finding their feet again, restoring um, uh, their own inner confidence, and returning to the place that they were when, in the wealth of nations, Adam Smith pointed out that China was the richest place on earth.
1: We tend to forget that part of history, and it's uh, far the greater part of the last uh, 20 uh, centuries that that China has occupied that particular place as the center of the world uh, economically uh, perhaps so uh, but less so um, politically because the, the one thing chi- china projected even at its uh, at its zenith was uh, wasn't a desire to become a global hegemon uh, in in the way that we saw with the the british and then the us how would you characterize the aspirations of China as it looks again to become the world's largest economy. It obviously, as I said, it wants that respect that it enjoyed in centuries past. But it does appear like it looks a little bit conflicted as to how it wants to achieve or or even deserve it.
0: I think you can uh, use it as an example. The most famous uh, building, if you can call it that, in China is, of course, the Great Wall, which was a defensive building. Um, At one stage, uh, there's one estimate that 10% of the world's population was involved in its building. Um, But it was a defensive structure. And China has never been that aggressive, except occasionally into its immediate vicinity, uh, really to protect its homeland. But it hasn't jumped in ships and, and gone on, you know, vast expeditions in order to colonize and conquer other parts of the world. That's not been its nature. Um, and I think that uh, it's actually quite difficult for a whole group of people who, whose nature it has been to try and understand that that's the way that China thinks. Um, and it goes back to the belief that you know, as the, uh, the Middle Kingdom, um, the, the emperor ruled with a mandate of heaven and they had everything that they needed. They didn't really need that much from outside, sadly, except for, of course, the aforementioned opium. But the reality was that China was a continent in itself. It produced pretty much everything that it needed for itself. Uh, And it didn't really need to trade that much with the outside world. Um, In fact, for the vast part of uh, sort of the modern era, let's say post uh, 1500, the only thing that China, broadly speaking, other than opium, took in from the outside world was silver. So it's been this. to say law unto itself is, is the wrong way of putting it, but it's been this country unto itself. Mm. Um, it has interacted with the outside world, but not not overly willingly. Um, and of course, the first opium war was fought precisely to force it to interact more with the outside world. Um, but it hasn't shut out the outside world altogether, although there have been periods of, of what one might call rec- reclusivity. But uh, we are now in quite the opposite. Since uh, Deng Xiaoping threw open the door in 1979, um, China has been anything but reclusive.
1: And that is why it's such a fascinating study at the moment to see what this new China means for the world. And at a time when we see world politics being upended, we've got this this new Cold War developing between the US and China, as some have gone to call it. This rivalry growing more dangerous with Russia and the US as well. We see Russia pivoting east towards Beijing Putin and China's Xi Jinping are really converging on things like energy and on challenging American leadership and hegemony. And we see China now projecting that power and influence in many directions. And I think the South China Sea, which is claimed by China and is probably the world's most critical trade route, really could become that theater, that arena where the US and China directly collide. That's certainly a big fear. In markets, How do you see this? How does the changing relationship between US and China play itself out in the field of, um, of, of the South China Sea that is becoming this new potential theatre of conflict?
0: Look, I, I, just, I completely agree with you. And we'll hear about the phrase uh, Taiwan Straits will probably be even mentioned in the closing communique of the G7 meeting in the UK later this week. G7 is, was supposed to be a, a, an economic gathering. It's now increasingly becoming a political one. But the reality is, is that that China is feeling as if it's been put in a straitjacket and you actually just look at the geography of the place and you can see what they're talking about. And, you know, meanwhile, the U.S. has got all those bases in in the Western Pacific, uh, including, of course, big bases in Japan and Korea and access to bases in Philippines and probably in Malaysia, probably in Singapore. We don't know what the defense contracts say. So, uh, you can understand how, how how China is feeling somewhat constrained. I mean if you put a an aircraft carrier just outside the um, economic zone or even the, the 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 normal sort of limits off the coast of California, an aircraft carrier from China, there would be all hell to pay um, but china doesn't do that as it? it goes back to my basic belief is that China is not a particularly colonial minded mm-hmm place um but uh we're now seeing and the phrase which has come to haunt me in the last two three months is much beloved by uh, anthony blinken of the us and that's a rules-based order well the reality is that china had nothing to do with the creation of those rules Uh, they are inherited um, and they're basically being forced to accept something they didn't help create that's going to be very difficult for what in 10 years time is likely to be the world's largest Economy, even if it's lost the crown of being the world's most populous economy to India by 2030. But nevertheless, you know, it's going to be uh, an extraordinary thing to ask that China should sit in the corner and stay quiet um, when it's the world's largest economy. And I think that in the last, I would actually even go so far as to almost six months, definitely during the, the, the sort of the Covid era, people have suddenly started to realize uh, the, the, that China's coming. Um, And it's coming fast. And yes, it was the origin of the COVID virus. But the reality was that it didn't actually, uh, wasn't actually so badly affected by it, uh, which is almost ironic. I mean, it continued to grow last year uh, as an economy and and is growing again very strongly this year. It will probably grow at eight and a half percent. So for all the talk of Biden last week that the major economies of the world, the United States is the fastest growing, it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, China's growing faster than than the United States. And that's before adding what I call the currency effect. Uh, If you want to think about how fast China's likely to grow in currency terms in 2021, it's probably 20% in nominal dollars. Now that's a phenomenal pace. And I think people are just beginning to realize that this extraordinary vehicle is now coming down uh, the motorway and is about to overtake the West. Um, and not just gently so. It'll push them aside quite quite profoundly. Come 2020, uh, 2035, it's not impossible that, that China could be twice the size of the United States.
1: Those numbers are almost too large for us mere mortals to get our heads around, Michael, and it really is a, a juggernaut, as you say, uh, coming down the motorway. Uh, I want to pause for a second on, on COVID, and obviously there is a, a lot of conjecture about the um, the origin of coronavirus, and uh, it it was further fanned by President Biden reopening the investigation and giving uh, American intelligence uh, um, the agencies what was it ninety day to report back on him, and the suspicion is that it was developed by the Chinese in that lab in Wuhan, uh, the, the the Wuhan Virology Institute. What impact is this having, if any? On China's soft power that it is trying to reproject in its sphere of influence?
0: Look, I don't think you can claim that it's having no impact at all. It's obviously giving the non committed parts of the world, those who haven't made up their mind, pause for thought. And there is a sense that, you know, even to some extent, if it did come from a pangolin in Wuhan market, China has something to answer for, even if that is the, the scenario that, uh, that actually ends up being the most likely. But I think that, uh, you know, we will move on Uh, and there probably will be a period of time uh, getting over this. I think China is going to have to learn to be subtle in its diplomacy. And uh, the wolf warrior, which I think is an overblown statement approach that China has apparently adopted, at least in the eyes of much of the West, is now going to be replaced after a speech last week by Xi Jinping with what I've dubbed and I haven't seen it written anywhere else. Panda diplomacy. And you will see that uh, China becomes much more soft and cuddly, uh, particularly, as I say, to the uncommitted parts of the world. And, and we're one of them. Mm. I think you're going to see China adopt a very different sort of approach uh, to uh, winning friends and influencing people uh, in the likes of Africa, much of Asia. Uh, we see that the ASEAN foreign ministers were in China last week, uh, probably much of Latin America. And I think that uh, the West has got its work cut out for it. It's not as if, as well, the West is not without its own problems.
1: Absolutely. But for us, uh, and I think importantly to bring this back home to South Africa, Michael, there is an opportunity to uh, realise that uh, we can recalibrate uh, what is already a a very healthy relationship bilaterally with China and multilaterally through BRICS. Uh, There is uh, an increasingly strong relationship between the ANC in particular, and uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but also when we think of China's uh, role in Africa, its Belt and Road Initiative, its uh, its need for commodities and resources, all of which we have um, an abundance of, how would you like to see South Africa's leaders exploit, I know is a terrible word, but uh, look after our own interests in this relationship as as China seeks to uh, win more friends and influence in Africa?
0: Productively and cautiously. I, I don't think that slamming the door on China at the moment, and, and maybe you have to be the size of India to essentially do that, and India is close to doing that as we speak. But broadly speaking, there's no country in Africa that, that, that comes anywhere close to being having the potential clout that India does. Um, And I think that we all have to recognize that uh, China is our largest trading partner for virtually every country in the continent. It supplies uh, stuff to us and it buys stuff from us. And we have to understand those facts of life. That's not to say that uh, individual countries or regions can't have, let's say, uh, some very warm and others less warm uh, relationships with China. And uh, myself, I'm born and raised in Kenya. And I can tell you that East Africa is much closer to China than South Africa is, with the result that there's much more involvement in terms of trade, but most importantly, in terms of investment, particularly in infrastructure in in East Africa, and I'm including Ethiopia in that definition, Mm -hmm. uh, than there is here in South Africa, where, if truth be told, and and I think if you look back through uh, the last 20 years, it probably goes back to the era of Tabo Mbeki, there has been a a sort of uh, uh, that horrible word that's sometimes used in diplomatic uh, parlance, cordial relationship. Hmm. Yes, I think it probably has been warming a little bit over the last few years. Um, but nevertheless, South Africa's closeness to uh, to China is, is is not nearly as much as as many other countries uh, in Africa.
1: So we also- need
0: to understand, we have got things they need, platinum, for instance, which is going to be so critical, platinum group metal, so critical to the renewable energy revolution can't be replaced uh, no one's really coming up with any alternatives now um and we've got to be you know we're so critical in the supply of that which is is very important to china's future so i think that they're willing to get closer we have yet to fully throw ourselves into 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 that relationship
1: yeah i, I recall a couple of folk acts ago that uh, a lot was being made about it but it, it hasn't fully translated there is uh, the Mercado Messina Special Economic Zone and Chinese interests are, are in that, although there are some environmental lobby groups who are up in arms around heavy industry and uh, a potential new uh, coal-fired power station in that uh, particular area and um, bulldozing baobab trees and that kind of thing. Which brings me to this whole, the theme of ESG and the energy environmental revolution that we're living through. And reading uh, Daniel Juergen's book over over the holidays, The New Map, I mean, he really does point out to China's strategic positioning in key value chains here, particularly a production of PV panels for, for solar power and also in the electric vehicle market as well, giving them a distinct advantage when it comes to this energy revolution. How do you see that playing out?
0: Look, I think one has to understand that the – and Daniel Jürgen was a hero of mine when I was doing my master's thesis um, – if you look back over the last 100 years, much of the geopolitics outside of uh, the encounter uh, between UK and US with, with, with Germany and, and also with Japan has been about oil politics and, uh, and particularly highlighted the role of the Middle East. Now, uh, when the UK was still briefly hegemon in the early part of the last century, they threw their lot in with Persia, the Anglo-Persian oil company ultimately became Shell. And then British Petroleum had very strong interests in that part of the world as well. And then, of course, the big American oil companies basically teamed up with with Saudi Arabia. In both instances, it underlined the point that uh, Britain and the United States uh, were not self-sufficient in their needs for oil and so had to import it. China's taken this lesson on board. It does want to, to the extent that it can be, uh, and that means far greater than it is today, although it is pretty independent in many areas today, like coal, for instance. It wants to be, broadly speaking, independent of energy imports, which means that the energy revolution, particularly the renewable energy revolution, gives them the chance to achieve that. And and they do this, and it's not been fully understood, but the forecast is that the Gobi Desert, which is a waste of space in, in most people's eyes, um, mm-hmm. is going to end up being you know, a new sort of oil region for them in the sense that they're going to be able to capture the sunlight of the Gobi Desert. There's rarely clouds. Uh, above the Gobi Desert, um, Mongolia, which shares the Gobi Desert, is known as the, the country of eternal blue skies, and that that hints at what you're dealing with. And they will be able to essentially harvest the sun and become, in large part, though not totally, uh, energy independent. Now, that's that's a huge advantage for a hedge fund. It means that they don't have, as the US ended up having around the turn of this century, about 2000, with the Middle East in particular. sort of almost achilles heel that uh what's happening in the middle east is important to the united states well moving forward 2030 to 2035 what happens in the middle east or any other energy producing area is not going to be of absolutely critical importance to china which is why and i think there are other reasons many other reasons but they are so far ahead in the world of renewable energy um and it's taken you know obviously dear old trump Took the United States back into the world of oil and and was uh, you know, crowing about the U.S. becoming the world's largest oil producer because they were exploiting huge amounts of unprofitable shale gas. Um, well, that's now pretty much being shaken out of the system. They may yet return. I saw a chart the other day saying even with all of that, the U.S. has only got four percent of the world's carbon reserves. So uh, you know, it's it's the U.S. had this problem and it could drag them into Iraq, it dragged them, I suppose inadvertently, into Afghanistan and has had them involved in the Middle East um, and doing, for instance, support uh, of Israel, which is part of their Middle East exposure, as it were. That's not something that China's going to have to worry about uh, in 15 years' time. Uh,
1: Energy independence uh, is an, an absolutely key and critical plank to to this China story as well, uh, the other issue is uh, obviously one of a um, an internal tension, and one gets the sense that you know China has always had uh, very much a, a nationalist uh, uh, culture, uh, and also a, a culture where the Chinese Communist Party has uh, brooked very little criticism. It feels it needs to exert control over such a large population. There are still uh, well over one hundred twenty million poor uh in china and it does need to continue to grow in order to uh, to keep um that internal politics at bay but at the same time it's wanting to project itself as a rising power again and there's some that feel if it fails to make changes fails to fully transform into a, a global power uh that has uh, a more democratic system that uh, the world might still view China as unattractive and threatening, and still try and cling to the coattails of, of Uncle Sam. Uh, how would you respond to that?
0: Look, I, 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 yeah, I think that they might do that, cling to the coattails, but perhaps uh, for more for um, just not really understanding what's happening in China. You're absolutely right. There are all sorts of internal tensions within China, and a few years ago they had what they called the Five Harmonies, and I'll probably forget them all now, between the rich and the poor, between urban and rural, between consumption and production, between what they called heaven and earth, which was essentially environment, and I've now forgot the fifth one. But they all reflected exactly what you're talking about. And these tensions exist, as in a sense they exist in in every country, but when you're dealing with 1.3, 1.4 billion people, it really does amount to a lot. Um, And and I think that they are doing what they can. So we've seen, for instance, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, that actually rural incomes have grown faster than urban incomes. Now, this is a deliberate policy on the part of China um, to not leave um, the rural areas behind. They will be behind, but not so far behind that inequality becomes uh, stark. Um, And they're doing now an enormous amount to deal with that uh, probably, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge task, 1.3 billion people uh, to deal with the things like environment. Um, I think the whole recent story um, of what happened to the likes of Alibaba and, and, and to some extent Tencent mm-hmm. in, in terms of clipping their wings is, is tied into the inequality debate. A, a recognition that they were essentially using monopoly power to, to, to create uh, small numbers of extraordinarily rich people. Um, So, I think they they had their wings clipped. I think China will try and deal with these tensions as best it can. Um, As I said, there are a lot of tensions to deal with. Um, But broadly speaking, uh, if you look at the the big picture at the moment, um, China's problems are are, are not so great that they are potentially going to bring the whole system down. Uh, Broadly speaking, they're on the front foot. Um, you know, look at the politics of the United States uh, and uh, you think you end up shaking your head and trying mm. to be polite. Mm. Um, but, you, you know, China does not have those sort of tensions. The tensions it has are often related to its periphery, be it Hong Kong, be it Xi'an. It, it's, 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 it's the areas, you know, the Han people make up 91% of the population of China. So they are ethnically quite uh, monolithic Mm-hmm. but they still have the nine percent around them hong kong to some extent is part of that nine percent now that they have to accommodate it's not going to be easy uh and i'm not going to be drawn on on you know what they're doing or what they're not doing i will acknowledge it and i will say that it's a hard issue um but uh that is probably where china should be be uh looking to do most at the moment uh, is on its internal periphery
1: and then a final question to my friend's 17-year-old son. Your advice from an investment perspective, considering everything that we've just discussed around uh, China, uh, what would that be?
0: Look, I wouldn't be putting everything into China, but by the same token, you'd be foolish not to have something in China. Uh, you know, As I said, come 2035, their economy might be twice the size of that of the United States. Um, yeah, this is not just the coming country, it's the coming region. And I think that's the the story one has to understand here, that it's China-centered Asia that is going to transform uh, the world in terms of its, its, its sort of a geostrategic, geoeconomic uh, character over the next 20 years. And I, I, I don't think you can be, uh, not be part of it. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the way in which um, that index, much beloved, uh, to you and I, um, you know, the all-country world index, the global index is still 54% uh, the United States at the moment. That's 4.3% of the world's population. You can't see that particular percentage rising over the next 20 years. And you can see China, which is, yeah, 22% of the world's population and 4% of the index, you can see China's share in that index rising. So yeah. um, I would... Uh, young enough to take the hit on the nose and and, and hang on to it and and, and look in selective places to add to your positions.
1: Well, China is no longer the crazy first-rate man-of-war described by uh, McCartney in 1793. In spite of as many problems, it's a, a sleeker, more modern ship. Over 200 years through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering... It's uh, successfully transformed the very core of its identity, changing itself from an inward and backward-looking power to a more outward and forward-looking one. Since uh, 1978 uh, or 79, it really has shown both flexibility and unwielding resolve in its continued pursuit of wealth and power. And now those goals are within reach, and China stands on the verge of greatness again. The next few decades may prove to be the most difficult of all.